Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now is Chi Wura, Labor Member of Parliament and Shadow Minister for the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. So thank you so much for uh, joining us. First of all, will Labor support this deal if, if it, I guess, you know, if the vote is in January, we're two months from, from kind of <laughs> yeah, possible crash yeah. out. Is, is the Prime Minister playing with time? Uh, the Prime Minister is definitely playing with time for the, for the benefit of her internal party politics, as we've seen last night. We are moving to what we're only 14 weeks away from possibly crashing out of the European Union, and a no-deal Brexit is not acceptable to across Parliament, not acceptable to our country. So Labour has actually been quite clear about what our tests are. We have six yeah. tests. The current deal that goes so far from meeting that. If she can, she said that was the only deal on the table. Now apparently she thinks she can renegotiate one. Yeah. If she, I don't think that's possible. If she can renegotiate one that meets our six tests, then we will yeah. support it. But do you really think she's playing from within her party now? Because now she, she, you know, placated that coup. She's in charge for the next 12 months. Oh, but she got there were 100 and yeah, she is. But there are yeah. 117. I mean, most of the, uh, the all, most of the backbenchers in her yeah. party, those who aren't paid by the party, the deal. they. Many of them, in fact, will vote against it. And some of those who voted for Theresa May will vote against the deal as well, because she is. She has, there's a fundamental fracture in the Conservative Party between those who want no kind of customs union, no kind of, of customs uh, hard Brexit, as they call it, and those many of them who want continued economic engagement and integration with the European Union, because that's where our, a lot of our economy is supported by. So that fundamental, like break in that party cannot be papered over in a couple of weeks. Does it, is the Prime Minister uh, stronger now than she was three days ago? I think the Prime Minister, yeah. firstly, you know, I don't, whoever was leading the, the, the Conservative Party, it wouldn't make that much difference because of these fundamental fractures, but I don't think she's any stronger than, than she was. She has, has shown that the, 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 you know, the significant 117 of her own members voted against her. But at she least they can't challenge her again. They, they, they can't challenge her, but remember she has to get a deal through Parliament. No. She but has that's to, up to get, you it, get guys it, to get it through, right? It's Labour and DUP and, <laughs> and, and all of you guys to see whether you want to vote to for get the through deal a deal or not. We support it, but this is the this is definitely the Prime Minister's deal with real fundamental flaws because it doesn't it doesn't say that we have a permanent customs union, which means that Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, would be in a different position to the rest of the United Kingdom, and that is just unacceptable in so many ways, and it also. And this is really important for us in Labour. It doesn't guarantee continued workers' rights and environmental protections. You know, we love our landscape, we love our countryside. We want our, we, we, you know, we want to avoid, you know, mitigate climate change. So these are fundamental problems with what she's proposing, and that's not going to change in the next two weeks, I'd say. Is there, a, is there appetite in the House of Commons for a second referendum? Is there appetite in the House of Commons for fresh elections? There's certainly appetite for fresh elections, and I'm sitting here with you as a, you know, an official spokesperson for the official, Her Majesty's official opposition, and we want a general election. Because you know what, actually... But look, enough, I mean, enough to push it through Parliament is what I'm trying to... What we gauge right now, and obviously it's the DUP, the, you know, the organised MPs who are keeping this government in power, and they have said that they won't vote, they won't vote for a vote of no confidence, they won't vote against the Prime Minister in a vote of no confidence, which means that 
they would affect probably means that they would that would win one but I was huge this huge discontent in Parliament not just in the Labour Party you know but also on their benches and we just to remember you know, we're talking about brexit here but in the country you know in my constituency what people are talking about is that they haven't had a wage rise in 10 years what they're talking about is that you know public services you know, we're in the we're in, having a winter a winter health crisis NHS crisis or you know already the policing you know crime is rising that's what people are talking about and only it's a general election that can change that and that's why there is real appetite for general election yeah. but the numbers mean that we can't be you know we want to make we want to push for that when we but have the maximum chance of success isn't a general election another distraction if if you vote for this deal, whether you're 100% convinced or not, then you can actually get back to fixing the country, fixing the NHS, and dealing with the real things that are important to the common people. You make a really good point about, you know, that, that, that we, we, we don't want to spend the next five years talking about Brexit. But the fact is that the deal that's on the table now will make my constituents worse off. You know, and across the country, we've seen that it, the, the, the government's own analysis says that GDP will be less than it would have been with the kind of deal that we want. So how are we going to go about fixing the NHS and or the other challenges when we have a deal which is making us poorer? And that, for example, you know, the northeast where I come from, we have Nissan making, you know, fantastic cars. It has an integrated supply chain. So it needs to have, it needs frictionless trade. If we see a general election, should Labour, you know, build a platform saying, actually, no, we want to go back to what it was, stay in the EU full stop? Uh, you know, so when we, you know, once we, we've got, this is... It's tricky. Right? Well, it's a really complex. One of the things I want to make emphasize: it's a really complex situation. You can't have simple, like we'll do, you know, simple responses, and that, you know, and it takes time. But every day by day, everything is changing. So I'm not going to say to you now what our manifest. I'm sorry, I'm not going to say to you now what our manifesto would be when you know we got a general election. But what's clear, you know, is what we want out of a Brexit deal, you yeah. know, which is continued strong in- economic integration with the European Union and a protection for workers and environmental. And that is what we'll be seeking to achieve. And another, we've got 600,000 members, and we yep. will be reflecting what they want as Chi- well. Chion Wara, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Labour MP there, uh, of course, in the House of Commons, right behind him. Joining us, Owen Dre with the Martin Center for European Studies. He is in Brussels. Um, Owen, we spoke to you earlier, and I guess just through the morning, the Prime Minister is in Brussels, and she is looking for assurances. To me, all of those assurances lead back to the Irish question. I think our listeners understand the Irish question, the history of the United Kingdom of Great Britain with Ireland and to the North Northern Ireland. But what's it mean for Europe? What is the Irish question for Brussels in Europe? Well, I think um, I think what, what, what your listeners have to remember is that um, there's more than stake than just, you know, the, the Republic of Ireland, Northern Irish board. For Ireland and for the Irish question um, at European Union level, it's about how the European Commission and the European Union can show its relevance and can show its importance to smaller member states it's like Ireland. So it's not just about the Irish border. The Irish border is just the issue that arose that shows, that can show uh, the European Union how important it is for smaller member states. It's also very, 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 very important to highlight that uh, for Ireland, uh, you know, the support uh, shown by the European Union over the last two years has 
fundamentally change the dynamic yeah. in terms of how it approaches relations uh, with London. I was thunderstruck by a couple of the articles that I read in the last few days in the Irish Times and in the London papers about the members from Northern Ireland, of course, with their leadership from Arlene Foster. She's appeared before on Bloomberg surveillance. And just the tangible worry or study that we could return to the troubles. Is that feasible? Yeah, I think it's, it's a very real worry, particularly in border communities where the border would be reinstated. If I could put, if I could put it like this, for an Irish person, uh, the reinstatement of the border north and south, it would literally uh, be like reinstating the border, the Berlin Wall, or the border between Estonia and Latvia or any of the Eastern European countries. It's just a very important symbol, the free border or the soft border, as we like to call it now. It was a symbol of peace and reconciliation. It was a symbol of how Anglo-Irish relations had progressed. And really to to kind of reinstate the border would, many people think, actually be several steps backwards, not just not just one step. What can America and the Trump administration do? Is this so discreet and separate we stay over on our side of the pond? Or can President Trump and his administration, can they add value? Absolutely, they can add value. I think uh, your, your listeners shouldn't forget that one of the, the, um, one of the reasons, one of the core reasons why the peace process in Northern Ireland has, has been successful was the extensive involvement of the Clinton administration during the 1990s. Uh, George Mitchell was the U.S. special envoy to Northern Ireland for many years. So the U.S. could actually play um, a very important role. The U.S. has many uh, historic, economic and social linkages, not just with Southern Ireland, with Northern Ireland, but also, of course, with the U.K., Andre, thank you so much with the Martin Center for European Studies. Greatly appreciate it. Just terrific perspective uh, this morning. Well, lots to talk about uh, uh, on all of this. And there's someone good uh, to speak of as well, and that is John Mills. He is, well, I frame him as a German, uh, a rather British businessman and economist, but with JML and currently uh, someone very much involved uh, in the idea of leave. John Mills, we are thrilled to have you with us today. And we've spoken to you many times before. How did leave change yesterday um i'm not sure leave did change very much yesterday i think the vote was a bit of a distraction but it left everybody pretty well where they were before there's still the same problems about getting the withdrawal agreement through nothing's changed on the difficulties around the backstop as you say the uh, prime minister's in brussels at the moment trying to get assurances on uh, on the backstop in northern ireland but whether she'll get enough to satisfy the very large majority of um, MPs in Parliament who are very concerned about yeah. the Dawn Agreement, I think remains to be seen. John Mills, one of the great common features of your thoughts of the United Kingdom and in speaking with Lord Skidelsky the other day uh, is everything focused on West Britain, on Ireland and Northern Ireland. Explain what happens now to this debate of Northern Ireland, and I want to go to a broader debate than just the border. There's more going on there than the backstop in the border, isn't there? 
There is, and that is really because of all the uh, background there is to the troubles that were in Northern Ireland in the 1970s and 1980s, which still simmer a little bit under the surface. And whereas normally having a border uh, would not be a huge problem, uh, in this particular case it's got all sorts of political overtones. Nobody wants to have a hard border there. The Southern Irish don't want that, the Northern Irish don't want that, the British don't want that, the EU doesn't want it. But we all need to find some solution that will work without that being a hard border there. And I think technologically that ought to be possible, but it's uh, just a question of getting everybody to agree to that. John, the strategy of Labour so far has been to let the Conservatives fight with themselves. And to be honest with you, it's been a pretty good strategy as well. John, what do you want to see from the Labour Party over the coming months? Well, my own personal view is that the best solution to uh, the difficulties we've got with the European Union would be for us to have a Canada-type free trade deal. And uh, my ideal would be for the Labour Party to pivot towards rooting for that rather than anything else. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I think the Labour Party is going to try and bring down the government with a uh, vote of confidence, but I'm not sure that's going to work. It may move towards supporting a second referendum, although that's a course of action which is fraught with difficulties. The problem is the Labour Party is very split, partly because although MPs are very Remain and so are most of the Labour Party members, the people who elect the Labour government, the large numbers of industrial people in Wales and the Midlands and the North who who Labour depends on for their support, are mostly voting Leave. Yeah. It's true. There are parts of the Labour core constituencies that did vote for leave. John, I want your view on something that's really important to the City of London. There's many people that Tom and I will speak to in the Square Mile, in the City of London, in financial services, who aren't so much worried about a hard Brexit. They're perhaps more worried about the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn becoming the Prime Minister. John, can you speak to that at all? Should we fear Jeremy Corbyn? Um, I think it's very easy to exaggerate the problems for the city that Jeremy Corbyn uh, or the government that he's heading up might uh, might cause. I mean, I think in practice the room for manoeuvre that the uh, Labour government would have on on constraining the city would would be fairly limited. And uh, any Labour government, any government, depends very heavily on the success of the economy to make sure that its support is retained. And I think to attack the city in a major way and cause all sorts of uh, economic problems and reductions of income and so on, it's not really in the Labour Party's playbook. John, the idea of leaving, I witnessed this firsthand on the green at Westminster of the geography of, of leave. The elites of London aren't spoken of enough. They say they talk about Remain, I get that, and the, the global internationalist zeitgeist and all. Do they have a compromise point? Do, 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 do the Remain people have a distance they can travel to meet leave or not? Well, I mean, in, I'm not sure there is. I mean, in the end, uh, the, 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 I think there's going to be a choice between whether we stay in or rejoin the European Union if it's after the 29th of March, or whether we have a free trade from outside. What's happened over the last two years is that the result of the election held in 2017 was to have a parliament that was determined to stay very close to Europe, uh, half in the single market and half in the customs union. And for very understandable reasons, the EU27 have hated that because it 
affects the, and compromises the security and integrity of the single market and customs union. And I think what in the end may happen is that the British people are just going to have to make a choice about either being fully in or fully out. And we'll have to see how that breaks over the next through, uh, well, weeks now, it's not even months. Well, John, final question for you. Can this parliament pass a deal before the end of January? I would be very surprised if it does. I think what's much more likely is it, the deal will come back sometime in, in January, it'll get voted down, and then there'll be all sorts of uh, options on the table, whether we go for a Norwegian-type deal, whether we have a, a uh, possibly pivoting towards the uh, free trade deal, or whether we have another, rever- rever- another uh, referendum. I think there's all these choices that would uh, be built on the table, but whether it's actually a majority for any of them, I think it's very doubtful. John Mills, thank you so much. Well, we're going to have to leave leave it there. John Mills, thank you so much with JML. We have such an important guest with us. He is Steve Major of HSBC. Stephen Major has been just absolute spot on on interest rates. And with that has been a really nuanced HSBC call. Steve Major, I think of your colleague Ben Laidler in New York, uh, rather optimistic on equities from my last conversation. David Bloom with an outlier call on strong dollar as well. In the backdrop of this, Steve, listening to Mr. Draghi, is how tempered this time is, how tempered this era is. To all of our listeners, what's the permanence of this low interest rate world? Well, I guess it's inflation. And the first question that went to Mr. Druggy just then was about the technicalities on the reinvestment program. I dare say the next question might well be on inflation. I mean, someone's got to ask him. Yes. What, what happened to the vigor in the labor market that you spoke of last time? Because I, I do remember it very clearly. It's only the last meeting. People, people were uh, questioning whether he was on his own. It was, it was either the last meeting or the one before, Tom. But the, the, point, the point is he was talking about an inflation that was coming through and, and vigor in the – I think it was vigor in the wage market. So um, where is it? That, that's the question. And I guess he might regret saying that. Well, I guess we all make mistakes. And, well, but, but it's the, a proxy. It's a yeah. proxy, Steve, for every single conversation. If we can move on from Mr. Draghi to the challenges of my conversation with Vice Chairman Clarida, he stated he saw yeah. reasonable growth in the United States. What our listeners know is they've got a two percent CD if they're lucky, or you know they're looking yeah. at a bond matrix at HSBC uh, that's subdued. What is the permanence of this era? Yeah. So. Um, I touched on it with inflation, but I guess the vice chair at the Fed is familiar because of his previous job with uh, global output gaps, global Phillips curves. And so if you put together the economies of the rest of the world and combine them with the U.S., it's quite clear that U.S. yields of 2% for bills quite high. And and, and that's the simple point. I think it's quite salient. Uh, Rather than look at the U.S. Phillips curve and the U.S. unemployment rate and the U.S. payrolls, etc., let's just go more global. Let's bring it all together. So what's happened in 2018 is that the U.S. has exported tightening of financial conditions to everybody else. Only in the last two months did it come back home in the form of wider credit spreads, weaker equities, uh, collapsing oil prices, and a U-turn from the Fed chair. 
Okay, a U-turn from the Fed chair and a modest U-turn from Mr. Draghi looking at inflation risks uh, to the downside, uh, I I, I guess. And and then I want to go back to the shocks that our American listeners could see. And I've got to go to your voluble colleague, David Bloom, who, I'm sorry, Steve, it's an outlier call of a demonstrably stronger dollar. What are the events that get you to that stronger dollar? Well, well, look, he, he's been right for most of the year. Oh, and, yes. And, and, and I guess voluble is quite a good description of him. I can think of a few, a few other words, some of them less polite. But the, the thing is with David is that he's, he's strong on this conviction, but he's equally capable of changing his mind. And that's the nature of spot FX. If the circumstances change, right. then they will the view. I cannot front run the forecast. And I don't know what the forecast might be in the future by definition. But look, if the cyclical circumstances change, that is one of the factors that he would incorporate. David and the team have been very good in also identifying structural and political drivers to underpin the dollar, which has been very much yeah. the case this year. This year, you've had political, structural and cyclical all driving the dollar higher. But you could take the cyclical plank away if the Fed chokes on the next rate hike. And then to look at another uh, tension point, and we can do this, folks, within the matrix of Steve Major's fixed income uh, world. It's one of the immovable forces of this entertaining eight weeks, or make it, frankly, 12 weeks, has been the trade deficit vector in the United States moving uh, in a, uh, I guess, negative Trump direction. It's certainly not making the president happy. And that gets me, Steve Major, to my chart of the year, which is twin deficits which is all of a sudden we've got fiscal deficit to GDP, trade deficit to GDP, moving uh, towards a 1985 outlook. Is that possible? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, before we started this conversation, the economic data that was announced by one of your colleagues was on the, the, uh, uh, the labor market and on the import prices. So import prices have fallen uh, on the month. I guess that's a function of energy and the yeah. dollar, what have you. So, so look to answer the question rather than go around it. Um, the twin deficit thing is is fascinating to me because um, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that in a way the U.S. needs to run um, a deficit if the rest of the world's in surplus, and whether that's the right. uh, current account or not, you, it's just basic accounting and economics. Unless we want to export to the moon or Mars, that's how it works. So, so the thing is, is that pursuing a smaller deficit, someone's going to have to pay. Either, either the domestics are going to have to save more, or, or, or you know, growth is going to be less. Uh, foreign, foreigners are going to sponsor less of the U.S. market. But the inter- interesting thing for me is that the um, the budget deficit has been going up very late in the cycle, um, and this is not what you'd expect. So you've got a kind of a crowding out, if I want to use an old economic right. term, a, a very strange strange time. So, so the economy is going well, but you've got no lack of potential buyers for short-dated assets mm-hmm. at the current price. The price is right, I tell everyone. That's, that's what's being missed. The, you, the other thing that you've got to look at when you talk, talk about these deficits, you've got to subtract one deficit from the other when it comes to the bond market. The current account deficit has to be has to be funded somehow, right? So there has to be right. an equal an offsetting flow. But um, you, you, you've got to remember that you can deduct that from the budget deficit. So 
the, the budget deficit minus the current account is what the domestics have got to buy. So if the U.S. runs a bigger current account deficit, then, then it, it, it's deducted from the budget. But the, the, the way I look at it is that there's no lack of buyers here. And you're, exactly. you're, you're, right, to point, you're, you're right to point out the twin deficits. We can go back uh, four decades and, and talk about what was happening well, then. Um, <laughs> in the time that but, we've got um, left, Steve, uh, just to, to go with your expertise away from full faith and credit, without question, the zeitgeist of debt right now is this odd word leverage loans. Now, I'm going to assume Steve Major mm. is not encyclopedic on leverage loans, but mm. you know there's always a vogue of worry. Should be yep. we be worried about these odd vehicles, leverage loans? Okay, yeah. So previous crises were related to a bunch of acronyms in the credit market, mm. CDS, CDO, CPDO, et cetera, CPDO squared, I think it was. Mm. So the, the, the point is we now have different acronyms. Uh, the, the, the risk is sitting in different homes. So 10 years ago, banks were warehousing credit risk. That isn't happening now. After the cleanup and regulation, banks do not hold large amounts of inventory. So the risk is somewhere. Now, it could be in asset managers or insurance companies. Now, the particular sector you're talking about is one that might not need so much mark-to-market. So the interesting thing is we may not see it immediately. See, in banks, we're, 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 we, have to, we have to mark. In some, in some other um, cohorts of the financial mm -hmm. markets, there's less mark-to-market. So you're right, there's a risk out there. It's had to have, it had to have been moved somewhere. Um, I think that the focus is going on to various um, aspects of the credit markets after a period of extraordinary leverage. So, yes. What is your call for the yield curve? We've, we've spent no time on the spread market, which is Look, the meat it's, potatoes it's, it's, it's been flattening when people have been calling for a steepening. Mm. And to me, the, the, the steepener trade people keep trying to put on, it's too early. So I think it stays flat until we yeah. are sure the Fed's going to ease. Now, they're not going to tell us they're going to ease, but they might tell us soon that they're going to pause and have a think about it. Um, that, that, that's coming at some stage. Um, in fact, they, they're probably not even going to tell us that they're going to pause. We've got to work it out for ourselves. But regarding the yield curve, it won't steepen until you can right. look over the other side of the mountain. You can start to see okay. rates coming down. I'm going to go mathy math on you here, uh, uh, Steve Major, but I think it's important. Is the yield curve comes down, and this is, folks, basis points, which are hundredth of a percentage point. And let's say we're at 0 0.50 or 50 basis points, 40, 30, et cetera. <clears throat> is it a logarithmic impulse or is it arithmetic and linear? Is the impulse to inversion to zero and then the negative two or negative five basis points, whatever, does it have elements? It's, it's nonlinear, isn't it? Nonlinear. It's nonlinear. Explain so, that so to you, our audience because I believe okay. I, I totally agree you're, with you. No, you'll you're, you're look at a basis point today and say it's worth 10 cents. So the 50 basis points on the 10 year yield that you just mentioned in a linear fashion, is worth 5% of total return, um, not accounting for coupons and roll-downs. So look, that's a simple linear relationship. But the point is, the lower the yield goes, the more value there is in each basis point. So it's, it's, it's non-linear. And the other thing is, with the yield curve flat, you've got to think about hedging of derivative products and mortgages and all these kind of things. People would have heard about convexity trades.
So, so that there's there's a there's a potential for the curve to accelerate flatter and invert. We saw it flirt with inversion recently in certain segments of the curve. Uh, so I, I don't think it's time for the steepener. I think we're a long way from that. And as you've rightly pointed yeah. out, there is a, there's a risk that may not be be, be thought through because it, it is a non-linear relationship. And um, I'm, I'm just doing it in my head. I think about 10 no, it's fine. for one basis point. No, I, I think it's so important. And then finally, um, and it's something I don't believe Mr. Draghi talked about because it's it's so sensitive, is the chronic nature of negative interest rates. I mean, we're back there. You and I had this conversation a year ago, yeah. 18 months ago, two years ago. And I'm sorry, this is getting old, isn't it? Well, I get questions from clients all the time talking about how damaging negative rates are to the banking sector asset yeah. managers and everyone else. I get that. But wishing for something to go away isn't good enough. Right. There's more to it than Okay. That. Steve Major, you have been more than generous with your time today. Thank you so much. Stephen Major is with HSBC. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.